You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining the Tech Tank Podcast. I am your co-host, Nicole Turner-Lay. We hope that you find the conversations that we're having on the podcast interesting. It is our goal to dissect pretty complicated issues in tech policy and understand them through a variety of lenses. We are grateful for your subscription to the podcast. And to those of you who listen to us bi-weekly, we appreciate your loyalty. It means a lot to my co-host, Dara Westamy. As tech issues continue to affect our everyday lives, Rest assured, we'll be talking about it right here. And if you like what you're hearing, do us a favor. Leave us a review or positive rating. Share the podcast with friends, family members, and colleagues. And let us know by retweeting your favorite episodes. Listen, today we're going to do something different. I thought it would be interesting to re-air the conversation that guest host Samantha Lay had with journalist and now author Taylor Lorenz. She's a columnist for the Washington Post a contributor to many other major outlets, and now an author of the book, Extremely Online, Influencers Who Shape the Internet. Two years ago, she came on and spoke to us. And let's keep our fingers crossed that she maybe will come back again and talk about her new book. But let's hear what Taylor had to say about the internet then and what influencers were doing at that time to fight against some of its atrocities. Thank you for joining the Tech Tank podcast. I am Samantha Lai, research assistant at the Center for Technology Innovation and producer of the Tech Tank podcast. I am filling in as a guest host for this episode. Joining me today is Taylor Lorenz, technology reporter for the New York Times who reports on internet culture. She is also an affiliate at the Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and has an upcoming book titled Extremely Online, Gen Z, The Rise of Influencers and the Creation of a New American Dream. Over the years, The internet has become an integral part of our daily lives. We work there, we shop there, we learn there. Almost everyone is on some form of social media, be it Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, or Discord. For our generation and the generations to come, we will be growing up with the internet and social media as a quintessential part of our lives, where we stay in touch with people from middle school, react to cat videos, and post about personal experiences. Some people have made a career out of being on the internet going viral for their hobbies, their advice, and their businesses. Social media is everywhere, but we're also all hyper aware of how it has become a controversial topic over recent months. As the failure of companies to handle algorithmic discrimination, the spread of misinformation, and the exploitation of children have translated into adverse social harms. And when we're considering how to regulate and resolve these existing problems, it is definitely important to examine how teens, the most tech-savvy population of all, have been navigating the internet. So today I have with me Taylor Lorenz, New York Times reporter on internet culture, to talk more about how Gen Zers use the internet, who influences are, and more. Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So let's get started. Can you describe the existing social media landscape to me? Is anyone from the younger generation still on Facebook, now known as Meta? What about Instagram, Snapchat? Has everyone moved to TikTok? For the average teen that has access to all these apps, how do they use these platforms differently? 
Well, they are still using Facebook products really in the form of Instagram. Most younger people are not using classic Facebook, which is something that the company is deeply aware of. And TikTok, as you mentioned, has also just become a, a hugely influential platform, especially in the past year and a half since the pandemic. It's become, I would say, one of the most sort of default go-to apps for young people. It's like Twitter and YouTube combined. It's entertainment, but it's also sort of real-time news and collaborative social things. And then some young people are also on Twitter, especially in Stan communities. And then things like Discord have become incredibly popular and smaller apps. And there's another app actually called Geneva, which is similar to Discord, but more geared towards young women. And these are places where young people can go congregate in more private communities instead of just posting openly on the social web. Really quickly for people who might not know, what are Stan communities on Twitter? A stan community is basically a very dedicated fan community. So you might see these people crop up. There's huge fandoms around artists like Lady Gaga or Lil Nas X or most famously BTS. The K-pop band teenagers will set up Twitter accounts specifically to engage in content related to their favorite music artists. Yeah, and I know that you're also known as the TikTok reporter. What do you think it is about TikTok in particular that made it big over the pandemic? TikTok has been just so interesting to cover. I noticed just the way people talk about it changed so much in the past year and a half. People used to say, oh, she's the TikTok reporter as if like in almost a derogatory way, as if like she writes about this frivolous, silly app. And I think now we realize it's actually one of the most powerful and relevant platforms today. TikTok is really unique because it is not built the way that all American social networks are, where it's this follow-based feed where you as the user have to seek out people and follow them. And then content distribution is directly related to people that you directly follow. TikTok takes away all of that burden from the user and has this algorithmically generated page called the For You page, which just delivers content that it thinks you'll be interested in. So you can follow people on TikTok, but it's more of like a vanity signal. It's not, doesn't necessarily affect what's on your For You page, which is a huge change when you look at the way American social networks work and it allows things to just be surfaced and go viral in an unprecedented way. Yeah. And kudos for you to getting the TikTok beat because as like so many people are on it now, and as you say, it's virality, it's for you page is really just so different. It's so interesting to hear you talk about the difference of that and other follow-based social media networks. It's also owned by ByteDance, which is a multi-billion dollar Chinese tech conglomerate. And I think we're starting to see China's influence in consumer tech in general, and specifically through TikTok, it's just been really interesting to watch these American social giants suddenly scramble. I think they were definitely getting a little comfortable for a while, and now it's it got a real challenger. Yeah, that all the more proves how important social media is to us, considering the political implications of different platforms and the competition thereof. Moving on from just talking about social media platforms in general, but also about how there has been more interest in social media legislation at large. A huge barrier for meaningful legislation there has just been how many politicians have really been struggling to understand how these platforms work in the first place. So taking, for example, how a couple of months ago, Senator Blumenthal asked a Facebook or a Meta representative if they were going to ban Finsta. So it's no surprise that like many of the older generation lawmakers included, 
didn't grow up with social media the same way the younger generation did and are less tuned into existing trends. So first, in the same way you had to explain Stan Twitter just now, would you mind explaining to us what Finsta is to those in the audience that may not know? Well, a Finsta, it's just a certain way of using Instagram. So many people have different types of accounts on Instagram. For instance, you might set up an account for your dog, right? Or you might have a personal private page where you just post photos, you know, for your family, maybe and friends or coworkers, right? A Finsta just describes the way that certain people, especially young people, use Instagram as almost like a spam page. Having a Finsta just means having a private account where you post things for only a select group of people. So it's a way to post on Instagram, frankly, the way a lot of adults do, where it's a private account where you're only posting to a small predetermined group of people. Instead of having a normal big public page, Afinsa is a place where you can privately rant, you can share messy screenshots. It really actually became a thing back in 2016. It's funny that it's entered the consciousness now because I feel like it's kind of not passe, but people are using other platforms for that type of behavior now. But back in 2016 and 2017, there was this move to have this very curated version, the peak Instagram influencer era where like everything was hyper curated and hyper public. And so young people felt a lot of pressure on their Instagram pages. They felt like, oh, college recruiters and my parents are going to be looking at these pages and I have to put out this perfect version of myself. I'm going to start this second Instagram account of Finsta that's really just for my close friends and people that I can complain about things. I can post photos where I don't look perfect. I can kind of post funny screenshots and it just lowers the pressure. So it's actually a very healthy outlet for people. It was so funny to see lawmakers try to like misinterpret it because having a Finsta was like this very healthy coping mechanism almost to deal with the, the pressures that come from being on social media. Yeah. And it's a very real pressure, right? Thinking about it, who wasn't a little bit cringe or regrettably weird when we were 13 or 14, but nowadays conversations and content that teens have on the internet can be immortalized forever with screenshots and text messages that just don't delete. 20, 30 years from now, how do you think this will affect the future generation that's running for office or pursuing public-facing careers when someone's going to look up their Facebook history from when they were 11, 12? People always worry about this type of stuff. And I think we have to consider the cultural context, which is that like, if this is true for everyone, I think we're going to have to shift cultural notions around the way people grow and change will shift. I remember, you know, I had Facebook in college, obviously as a millennial, people would always sort of post these things of, oh, be careful what you put on Facebook. And obviously that's good advice. Everyone should be very thoughtful about their internet presence. But I did a story at the Atlantic a couple of years ago, actually, where I interviewed young children between the ages of five and 11 about the first time they discovered they had a presence on the internet. And they talked about essentially Googling themselves for the first time or searching their name on social media and finding out that an entire narrative about their lives had already been just made about them from their schools, from their parents, and from outside forces. So there's this focus on individual responsibility, and you need to be careful about what you put online. But actually, our online reputations are just as much um, beholden to, for instance, a parent that overshares on Facebook all day about your entire life, right, from the time you were born to growing up. And or your school, you know, so many classrooms these days have blogs, or I talked to a preschool that had this public Instagram page where they were just posting photos of all of the children in their preschool all day. 
as a way to help parents feel like they're in the loop or summer camps or sports teams, like they're putting out all of this information on everyone every day. And so I just think it's a little bit out of our control too. I guess people need to be careful about what they post on social media, but your personal Instagram account is almost nothing compared to just the amount of data that we have on the internet every day. And I was actually surprised what a lot of these children had to say. A lot of them, one boy was very disappointed that he didn't have photos on Google and he was in elementary school, but he said like, well, once you get a photo of yourself and it comes up on Google, like then you're a real person. And I just think it speaks to how we view internet presence as, as like a presence. You don't exist unless you are on Google or you are on the internet. And so much of that is out of our control. It's really interesting to think about how it is about reclaiming narratives and how for people who are growing up at this time, their presence is so public by the time they're two or three in a way that they can't necessarily control. But also talking about younger children wanting to have a presence on the internet, can you also tell us more about influencer culture and what being an influencer means? How do people become influencers? Sure. Well, being an influencer or content creator, it's sort of the same thing, but sometimes people interchangeably use the words influencer and creator means creating almost a mini media company online, often around your personal brand. So that can mean developing an audience on TikTok and then porting that over to YouTube and monetizing it. I think of creators or influencers as basically little mini entrepreneurs. So a lot of people are actually hearing that word influencer a lot or creator, um, which stands for content creator. And the word influencer and creator are interchangeable. It means the same thing, which is basically somebody that's building a little mini media company on the internet, on social media, often based on their personal brand. So that can mean being a popular YouTuber, Twitch streamer. It's anyone that's basically leveraging an audience on social media or an internet platform and then monetizing that audience in some way. Sometimes it's through advertising. Sometimes it's through um, brand partnerships. Sometimes it's through selling merchandise, but it's this new distributed media ecosystem that we're living in now where each person, each influencer can be their own little mini media company. I know in the past you've written about how social medias have actually been trying to court influencers to come to different platforms to increase their platform popularity. Can you tell us more about that and how successful those efforts have been? Yeah, well, for the first pretty much decade, or I would say really from 2006 to 2020, pretty much every single major platform, with the exception of YouTube, shunned influencers. Tech executives did not like these people, a lot of them really thinking specifically of Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter. They really did not like users having a lot of power on their platform, and they didn't want to help those people make money or anything like that. But when TikTok came along and really embraced influencers and embraced creators, Um, it opened up their minds to what a potential business opportunity this is. Obviously, this is something that YouTube has long known, which is that if you can successfully help these people build businesses really off the backs of your platform, that can make you a lot of money. And so in the past year, really since TikTok kicked off and started becoming the default place for these people to get discovered, suddenly you see Instagram and Twitter and Facebook now be like, wait, oh, we love content creators. So like, come try and build an audience on our platform. Of course, it's 
the fatal flaw of all of these American social networks is their distribution. And it, they're all still based on this um, outdated follower model, which is very hard. It can be very hard to build an audience because you need people to discover you and you, you need users to essentially like subscribe to you. Whereas on TikTok, you don't need that. So it's much easier to blow up and launch a business. So they're all trying to play catch up now. And it's been very interesting. And then you have the venture capitalists who just come in at the end of every trend and are there to really monetize it all. And they've been pouring tons of money into the creator industry in the past year, building startups to support this and help people build these internet enabled businesses. So what exactly do those venture capitalists do or what are they funding? Are they funding individual creators on their independent endeavors? Not so much as the saying goes, um, which I quoted in a story recently, there's that saying was like the smartest people in the gold rush sold shovels or something, which it just speaks to this idea of it doesn't necessarily make sense to fund specific you know, creators as much as it does to fund the tools that can help anybody launch a business, right? Like it just, it scales better. It has a bigger opportunity for profit. And as we've seen, backing individual creators can be very risky. For instance, David Dobrik, a huge YouTuber, received tons of venture funding to launch his own photo sharing app that quickly imploded after he was involved in a scandal involving sexual assault. So I think rather than take the risk and back these very volatile creators who often had very short-lived careers make sense to um, back things like Stir, for instance, which is a venture-backed platform that helps creators better monetize split revenue when they collaborate with each other and monetize their sort of the business operations of, of their duties. So there's tons of stuff like that. There's things, I mean, you could even consider something like Cameo, a good example of a VC-backed uh, business that's built off the backs of creators. Uh, most talent on ta- Cameo is not the A-listers, right? It's these kind of like online YouTubers or reality stars or people that are like other internet famous people. And they can basically go on Cameo and charge for shout outs, which they couldn't do just 10 years ago. So it's helping the creators monetize. Oh, that's really interesting. So if you were to describe the influencer industry to someone who didn't know it at all, how would you describe where the money goes? Who are the important players? I know that there are unions now. How does all of that work? Yeah, well, the important players are the agents, the managers, the the talent, obviously the content creators themselves, and then the brands. And obviously those are the brands that they start. You're seeing more and more creators launch their own businesses. That's the big trend now is for years, creators mostly made money off brand deals. And now because it's become easier and easier to launch a brand and launch your own shop, creators are launching their own brands and marketing it to their audience. You can think of this as like the Kylie cosmetics model where Kylie Jenner launched her own cosmetics line instead of doing a big deal with Clinique or something. So, and the venture capitalists, I mean, there wasn't a ton of VC funding in this space. And in the past year, there's been a ton and we'll see if they stick around, you know, it's been really interesting to watch that money come in because they are definitely pouring billions into the space. But, you know, as we know with startups, not every startup makes it. So I think there will definitely be like a leavening probably at some point in the next couple of years, but we're just at the beginning of this whole shift towards the, what people call now the creator economy. Billions. Wow. That's a lot of money. As glamorous as an influencer may seem, and there's certainly, you see a lot of really good stuff there. I know that you've also previously written about certain drawbacks, like how young influencers can be vulnerable to burnout and exploitation. And I can imagine for 
someone below the age of 18 to navigate the space of agent and managers and reputation and having to post online at regular intervals, that can be a really overwhelming process. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, what I think we're starting to see now, um, especially in the past year where burnout has been such a big topic of conversation, is that with this whole quote unquote creator economy, like it seems like all of the child labor laws have just gone out the window. There's so many kids that are building businesses online and there's no regulation around any of it. So for instance, a child actor who's part of SAG-AFTRA or something, right? Like they can only be on set certain hours a day. There's all of these rules around schooling and the number of breaks that they need to take versus working. And, and there was a big labor push in the early 1900s or mid 1900s around child exploitation in the entertainment industry, right? Now you have 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds, whoever building businesses on YouTube, for instance, and there's no regulation around that, right? Like no one can come into your house and say, hey, Johnny, you've been making YouTube videos for 10 hours. You really need to stop and log off for a while. So it's that's all up to the parents, but of course, parents don't really know what's happening. Even then, they're essentially running their own business, and so it's up to them to pace themselves. And and most young people cannot successfully pace themselves. I mean, they have a lot more energy than those of us who are older, but they do burn out at a really high rate. And we've seen that with TikTokers more than anything. So people are immediately finding fame, immediately launching products, scaling up really quickly, getting a manager, getting an agent, and then burning out a year later and quitting the internet. So it's something that I think actually really good managers and good agents are very aware of. I've talked to people at UTA, WME, these big agencies, and they have a concerted interest in their client's longevity. And so they're very quick to try and protect their, the talent's time, but it's very hard. I mean, these are basically teenagers that are operating as mini CEOs of their own little startups. So just think about what you were like as a teenager. There's not always that foresight or understanding of taking a break. Yeah. Do you think that there's space for regulation here? Or is this mostly just oh. a, it's up to agents and managers? No, we desperately need some sort of a change, right? I, I don't know how that will come, right? Regulation is certainly one option, but I don't have a ton of faith in any lawmaker's ability to regulate this space when they seem to don't even understand how these platforms work. I don't know if changes will come from within either. I, something needs to happen. I think it's probably going to be a confluence of forces. Like one is educating parents of young people of the nature of this and encouraging them to get more involved in their child's online behavior. Two, I think it's the industry realizing that this isn't good. Tech company is doing better and putting more protections in place around this type of stuff. I, don't, I just don't know. It's going to be very difficult. Certainly yeah. have the answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a very complicated and just new phenomenon too. So we're all just watching it. And I also know that in the past, you've written about like beyond teenagers overworking, burning out. There are also issues with racial and social inequities for people of color who are also influencers. So can you tell us more about that and how young creators of color have been able to stand up for themselves in the existing system? Yeah, I think that all of these social platforms are built to reward basically straight, attractive looking young white people. Like it's just this, it's the same with advertising in the media industry, right? Like when you think of a young uh, heartthrob um, actor, right? It's usually this like handsome, young, generic looking guy. And so those are the people that succeed on social media as well. But especially last year with all of the racial reckoning, there's been a lot of attention on the inequality 
in the online creator space. So in many ways, the online creator space is a million times more diverse than the traditional media industry or entertainment industry. That's the whole reason that it became popular in the first place is because content creators were serving a lot of niche interests and marginalized groups that the traditional media and entertainment industry overlooked. So in that sense, it's incredibly democratizing um, and empowering for, for creators of color. But on the flip side, there's still a lot of institutional discrimination, I think, in the broader media and entertainment and brand world against creators of color. So that was a big conversation last year where Black creators were like, hey, why are we being paid less to be in ad campaigns that TikTokers are, are getting like twice twice the rates? Or, or why are we not getting the same opportunities as a lot of these more like cis normative like content creators? So there was a lot of backlash and conversation. And it's one of those things where the internet is always a reflection of culture, right? And the collective values of our society. And if collectively society doesn't value black people as much as white people in terms of like their marketing, you know, value, right? Like they're going to get paid less. So it's up to the brands to champion equity. It's up to really the whole media and entertainment industry and the tech industry, more important than anything to make it equal. I should actually, I don't know why I keep saying media and entertainment, because this is ultimately the tech industry, right? Like who is rewarded on these platforms is ultimately up to YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and how they build their platform and, and the different types of features that they roll out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And even how they um, prioritize people algorithmically, all of that is up to them and they do have the onus to do something about it. Well, right. And in terms of prioritize algorithmically, I just want to be careful because it is not like any of these tech platforms have the ability to say, oh, this person's black, we're deranking them, right? No, that's not how algorithms work. These algorithms are built in a way to reward engagement. And so often rewarding engagement, you're just going to get the same types of people. And there's other things that they do to suppress marginalized voices and, and creators, for instance, harassment, right? Harassment and abuse are huge topics of conversation. No platform can be creator-friendly unless they have a good handle on that. And if you have a thing where every time a Black creator goes viral, they're flooded with racist attacks and horrible messages, and there's no protections for users, they're going to shy away from that platform and they're going to they're gonna not produce as much content or they're not going to want to be engaged in the creator space. Or brands might see that and think, oh, well, these people are more controversial. I'm just going to stick with this generic white creator, right? So it's, it's really about building inclusive tech products from the get-go in, in every area. It's not just the algorithm, right? It's yeah, yeah, that makes sense. What companies have been doing a better job at that or what measures have they rolled out to help creators combat abuse? I would love to say any of these platforms are doing a good job. I don't want to like single anyone out necessarily. I, I don't think anyone's doing a great job. I, TikTok has definitely been a place that's taken a real hard look at themselves and I think are trying to tackle these issues. Kudzi, who runs the creator program for TikTok in the US, is a Black man himself and I know has spoken a lot about equality and they have a whole Black creators program and they work a lot to partner with marginalized creators. I think other platforms such as as Instagram and Twitter especially have just not made it a priority in the same way. And so I think they've got more catch up to do, but once again, their platforms work differently than TikTok. So they have each platform has different challenges. 
But Twitter's pivot towards being creator friendly is just hilarious in some ways, because the number one thing that keeps people from developing audiences on Twitter is like harassment and, and abuse. And that's just something that they've traditionally for years and years deprioritized. So it'll be interesting. They have a new CEO now, how that those priorities change or trickle down. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely going to be interesting. So we've talked a lot about the dangers of the internet and many problems that people face being on it. And there's still a lot that has to be done by platforms, so on and so forth. But in the past, you've also reported on instances where teens have fended for themselves and their own communities, fighting back against vaccine misinformation, educating other people on topics like mental health. Can you tell us more about the stories that really stuck with you? Yeah, I mean, I love doing stories. I'm ultimately a techno optimist. I really do believe in a better world through technology, not necessarily the technology that we have today, but I love writing stories where young people are using the internet to do interesting things and find their own way. You mentioned the misinformation stuff. I yeah, I wrote about a lot of education that kids were doing to try and educate people on getting vaccines. I wrote um, a story recently that's not up yet, but I think it should be up soon about um, this kid who created Birds Aren't Real, which is this parody conspiracy movement aimed at helping young people process misinformation and this like idea of misinformation and kind of like media literacy as a whole and helping people understand recognize conspiracy theories better, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, local and in in terms of the vaccine story that I did, local and state governments partnered with influencers to get the message out. I think it's just a further reflection of our media climate, right? It doesn't make sense to buy banner ads to tell people to get vaccinated, right? That's just not the type of advertising that resonates, whereas partnering with content creators makes a lot of sense. But Yeah, I'm always on the lookout for interesting new stories. And I love writing about cool creators themselves. I wrote about actually this TikTok chef, Etan Bernath, who blew up on TikTok for his videos and now runs his own media company that's making millions of dollars. It's like a food, basically a competitor to the food network. And he's just 19 years old. So I love writing stories like that. It's really cool when people are able to find and monetize their passions online. It's really impressive how a lot of these young kids have been able to develop their own businesses, maintain their own social presence. But at the same time, on the flip side, there's a pretty compelling argument right now that there aren't enough safeguards for kids existing on the Internet. For example, while the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act specifies that only children above the age of 13 can access certain services, it's been hard for most platforms to actually enact that. Most of these have most of these platforms just have this box that you tick to certify that you're above the age of 13 and everyone can do that. So a lot of children below the age of 13 are actually using these social media platforms. So right now, a lot of lawmakers and social media platforms are looking into being stricter on the age of users on their platforms and placing limitations on what users can contact children below the age of 16 to prevent harassment and exploitation. They're also looking into limiting how advertising plays out for children below a certain age. So when it comes to measures like these and more, and drawing from your past conversations with the younger generation on the internet, what do you think lawmakers could keep in mind when thinking through what kids will find helpful or unhelpful? I think obviously children usually just want to be as online as possible. There's always that countdown that children have of when they can get their first phone or when they can get an Instagram account. And of course, a lot of people lie and set up accounts before they're 
allowed to by their parents or by the law. But I think that these restrictions are, are obviously um, helpful in a lot of ways, but I think it's also just really important to look at how these products are designed as a whole, right? Any harms that are happening to children are usually also happening to older users too. And while it's very important to protect children because they are in a more vulnerable you know, place usually than older users, I think that lawmakers need to just get a more nuanced understanding of the, how these products are set up to begin with and realize like, yeah, of course it's useful to like age gate things and protect in that way. But we also have to think about these platforms and, and their desire to scale and, and monetize as much as possible versus just the consumer safety and health in general for everyone. It's not like mental health or problems stop the minute that you turn like 18 or, or something, right? Like on these apps, like it's, a lot of them are harmful in lots of ways and specifically around harassment and abuse. I think that's like one of the most toxic things. No platform has addressed it in any sort of comprehensive way. But I think that there should be a better system of reporting harassment and having those concerns taken seriously, not just brushed aside as a consequence of doing business on, online. Because we know the people that suffer the most harms are often young women and um, young people from marginalized backgrounds. Absolutely. There's a lot of important work to be done. And thank you so much for really laying out the landscape of what is going on the in, on the internet right now and what issues you have to care about. So thank you so much again, Taylor, for coming onto our podcast. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bits, not bites. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I'm Samantha Lai, research assistant at the Center for Technology Innovation and co-producer of Tech Tank. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.